And welcome to another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. I am your host for the day, Jonathan Hall. And here in the virtual studio, I have Will Button. Howdy, everyone. And we're excited today to have our special guest, Matt Butcher. Did I say that correctly or did I butcher it? Uh, I've never heard that one before. (laughs) Uh, I've gotten into the habit of introducing myself uh, when people ask how to spell my name. Like a meat cutter. Yeah. Yeah. Meat cutter. Yeah. Cleaver, right? Matt Cleaver. Cleaver, I've got a new online handle now. I'm gonna- <laughs> right, no one right. would ever guess that Mark Cleaver is really Matt Butcher. <laughs> Welcome, Matt. I'm glad you're here. I think this is going to be a fun episode. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Currently, I'm uh, the CEO of a startup called Fermion. Uh, We're building the next wave of cloud computing with WebAssembly. I got here sort of through this nice roundabout way of going back and forth between startups and megacorps. Really kind of got my first taste of cloud computing, which is uh, went from... Drupal development to cloud computing when I was at HP Cloud, and they were really, really into OpenStack at the time. And once I kind of got a taste of infrastructure computing, I have never looked back. Wow, cool. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So you were at Microsoft until, what was it, a year ago, a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, until, yeah, November 1st was when we started Fermion. And prior to that, I'd been at Microsoft for four or five years. Cool. And what does Fermion do? We are building a, a cloud service for WebAssembly. We are kind of, uh, we were looking into what, what we thought the next wave of cloud computing was going to look like and what some of the seemingly intractable problems with cloud computing were, particularly having been deeply steeped in the Kubernetes and Docker ecosystem. We were saying, all right, so there's some things we've learned here. How do we, how do we build something that's going to solve some of the edge cases and some of the uh, the, the non-starting cases for containers and Kubernetes. And that got us really looking at a, at a variety of different technologies. And WebAssembly was the one that really stood out to us. Uh, I know it's a browser thing. Most people, when they think of WebAssembly, think of running Rust or C or something in the web browser. But that mm-hmm. same model that makes it really interesting for the browser is what caught our attention. You know, when you think about characteristics of, of running code in your browser, you think, well, you really want a good security sandbox. You want really fast startup times. Uh, you want cross architecture, cross operating system support, and of course, you know, support for a variety of languages. Those were all the same kinds of things that when we were looking at the cloud, we thought, you know, it would be really great if we could have 
a good architecture that's going to sit sort of alongside virtual machines and containers as sort of like this next wave that's going to be able to do things like scaling up and down, you know, in milliseconds and uh, and running uh, Rust applications or Swift applications or JavaScript or whatever kind of in this neutral security sandbox that can be managed well as a cloud service. Awesome. During that whole spiel, three words jumped out at me. Web, WebAssembly, Kubernetes, and milliseconds. So you're telling me we can run Kubernetes in the browser and it only takes milliseconds, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wait, cancel everything, you know, <laughs> start all, all over again. Yeah. Uh, when I seriously, so I worked uh, at Microsoft for Brendan Burns, uh, who is the creator of Kubernetes. And the, I scheduled a meeting with him and I must have set the topic to be something like WebAssembly and Kubernetes. But he starts the meeting going, you better not be telling me you did some hipster thing where you're running Kubernetes in the web browser. <laughs> no, I swear, that's not what I was doing. <laughs> Somebody's going to do it. And if they hadn't thought of it yet, now they have, unfortunately, yeah, and they yeah. will do it. <laughs> I'm sure Just, it's a weekend project. You should have no right. trouble knocking that out between Friday afternoon and Monday Knock morning. Knock that out in half an hour. It's easy. <laughs> Just make sure you tag all of us on Twitter whenever you release it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've, we've sort of beat around the bush a little bit. Today we're going to talk, I, I think we're going to talk about Helm. Uh, you used to work on Helm, I guess. I imagine you still use it if you're using Kubernetes. And I understand you you uh, were there at the inception, I guess, and sort of know the origin story yeah, of yeah. how Helm came to be. You want to tell yeah. us about that? Yeah. So so to kind of frame this out, right, I, I, I prior to starting Fermion, we were at Microsoft. Prior to Fermion, uh, I was at a company called Deus. And uh, Deus was one of the very early players in the Kubernetes space. Primarily, we came out, we were building a uh, platform as a service, an open source competitor to Heroku is basically what we were trying to build. And in the course of building that, we were experimenting with a lot of different container orchestration systems because the way the system worked is you supplied your source code, checked it into a Git repo, uh, you know, that kicked off a workflow uh, that uh, built the binary, put it in a container and ran it somewhere. And the ran it somewhere part was rather substantial. So we started looking at different orchestrators for for doing this. Uh, we had been using one called Fleet from CoreOS, which has been gone for uh, unmaintained for quite a long time at this point. But at, at that point, it was kind of the new shiny thing. And along comes this like out of Google sort of project with a name we couldn't pronounce called Kubernetes. And and we went, I don't know. I mean, I had worked at Google before and I'm like, well, you know, Borg was pretty cool. Maybe we should take a look at this. And so the engineering team uh, at Deus started playing around with Kubernetes. We liked it. At this point, it was very early. It was uh, just prior to 1.1 when we started experimenting with it. And uh, so as we as we began the process of sort of experimentally lifting and shifting the, the Deus uh, workflow paths onto Kubernetes, uh, we started to notice, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, lot, a lot to be gained here and a lot to be done. So we convinced uh, the upper management that we should sort of pivot into Kubernetes from Fleet. And in, in revenge, <laughs> the management said, okay, well, we're going to have an all-company meeting and we're going to fly everybody into Boulder, Colorado. And it's uh, up to you to explain how all of this works to the company. And I said, 
to the company like all the engineers and they said no to the company like marketing and finance and all of them as well. <laughs> so have like a hackathon to kind of get people going on um, and you were thinking nobody's ever been fired at an offsite before so yeah. i probably say <laughs> <laughs> like it's kind of like a crossover between a shark tank and uh and, and an afternoon meeting uh yeah and they gave me the slot right after lunch i'm like come on you know people are going to be falling asleep and well, at least you can blame them for when the lunch for their comatose rather than your speech <laughs> <laughs> yeah so on that one i decided well i've got to do something that captures people's attention so i went and got my daughter's stuffed animals and took a couple pictures of them it was like a giraffe the go gopher you know couple other an owl and i wrote a powerpoint slideshow called the illustrated children's guide to kubernetes and put that up there and uh and, and is that still available somewhere that, that it, sounds amazing yeah, the, the marketing department took it and actually published a, a book form nice. of it. So, yeah. Nice. Um, and I think <laughs> those characters are like now the CNCF mascots. But we did that in the afternoon. And then after that, they started a hackathon project that was supposed to be like, hey, now that you heard a little bit about this, you should go try building some kind of Kubernetes tool. So uh, so I joined a group with, uh, with Jack, Francis, and, and Remus. And the three of us brainstormed a little bit and said, you know what we should do? We should try creating like the NPM for Kubernetes. And so we sat around and hacked on this thing for an afternoon and we came up with the best name ever. We decided, all right, well, you know, Kubernetes gets shortened to K8S, Kate's. Let's let's go with like a coffee shop motif and let's call it Kate's Place. And so we did this whole <laughs> coffee shop motif about Kate's Place, the, you know, the, the package repository and package manager for Kubernetes. And we worked on it, you know, we went out for our team dinner and everybody, you know, had dinner. Then we, you know, bolted and worked on it a little bit more that evening and then the next morning and really didn't pay attention to anybody else's sessions. Um, and by the end, we had this demo. And uh, so we did sort of, again, like a Shark Tank kind of thing where everybody came up and presented their demo. And CEO, CTO, and and maybe it was the architect from something else or something. They they judged kind of the the entries in here. And at stake was a seventy five dollar Amazon gift card. And so we did our whole pitch. Yeah, yeah. And we we won. We we won the seventy five dollar gift card, which we had to split three ways. That's the sum total of money (laughs) I have ever gotten out of Helm. Uh, it's more than I've gotten. Yeah, that's more than most open source projects have made. So, oh, you know, it's, uh, the fame totally makes it worth it. I'm, I'm right. yeah, definitely great. Hey, can you fix my bug? Yeah. So, uh, uh, the next day, I went back to went back to life as usual, and I'm sitting at my desk uh, hacking away on some code and. Uh, the CEO and CTO call me and I'm like, oh, crap, I am in big trouble. <laughs> Here comes the meeting. <laughs> yeah. And they said, so about that demo thing you did yesterday, uh, we kind of like it. Uh, we're thinking maybe it's a good idea and maybe we should keep working on it. There's there's just one caveat. You've got to change the name. <laughs> uh, they didn't like the coffee shop motif much either yeah. so I called back Jack uh, whom I'd been working with and the two of us sat there with a nautical dictionary and we're uh, on opposite sides of a call same one pulled Such up nerds. between the two of us and we're just reading words back and forth to each other <laughs> winners such as uh, various knots uh, I don't know slip knot you know things that just really don't convey anything terribly mm-hmm. you know package manager and my version of the story is that Jack said Helm. Jack's version of the story is that the two of us simultaneously said Helm. But I'm pretty sure he's the one who said it first. I'm like, yeah, that would be great. And, you know, with this whole idea of like taking the Helm and steering something and then having charts that are like nautical charts where you use that to, to navigate. 
And uh, and so that was how we kind of decided on that. And then for the next several months, that was what we did while we were at uh, at Deus. I think, let's see, the first commit to Helm must have been somewhere in like October of 2015. And then the first KubeCon was a month and a half later. So we debuted it at the very first KubeCon. Uh, nice. Two, I would say, neutral reactions. A lot of people were like, no, you don't understand Kubernetes. We, we definitely don't need a package manager. You can just write YAML. And at the time, maybe so. I mean, your average Kubernetes application probably was about 40 lines of YAML. But as Kubernetes matured, it became clear that managing a group of, of you know, associated YAML files in and of itself was very difficult. And so Helm kind of grew in popularity and then grew in sophistication. I think it must have been maybe four months after that, maybe January, that Google showed up and said, hey, this is a really good idea. Uh, they had been working on a competing project called Kubernetes DM, and I don't even remember what DM stood for at the time. And they just rolled Helm into that repository. And that was actually how we got from a Deus Lab re- repository into Kubernetes itself, was just kind of rolling the project directly into theirs. Uh, and we worked on it there, and other companies started joining. Bitnami was next. And before long, we realized uh, it's that, that shocking moment in open source where you wake up one morning and see that somebody's using your thing in production. And you're like, whoa, table stakes are a lot higher now than they were yesterday. Uh, so that, <laughs> that was, that was uh, pretty exciting and terrifying at the same time. And then from there, uh, I mean, it wasn't long after that that uh, that Microsoft came along, and so Brendan Burns, uh, you know, head of head of the Kubernetes project, had started at Google. He'd moved over to Microsoft, and Microsoft had sort of seen seen the vision, right? They they understood what Kubernetes was going to offer to you know operators from small to, to gigantic enterprises. And so they really wanted to build out their Kubernetes presence. And Brendan Burns and, and uh, John Gossman at Microsoft came and approached Deus and, and ended up acquiring us. And it was great. I honestly, working at Microsoft was a fantastic experience. And, and they split Deus into sort of two teams, two, two basic teams. One of them went and built AKS, which is Azure's main Kubernetes offering now. And that, that team is just a phenomenal team of low-level system engineers. And then the other half of us became sort of like the open source team. And Helm became like my day job. And so in a way, I mean, I joke about only making $25 off of Helm, but actually, you know, it was my full-time job. And that meant that we had time to focus on building the community. Karen Chu was our community manager, and she was amazing. And it meant we had time to develop out the features and to, uh, you know, we did two Helm Summit conferences that were specific to Helm. And it was just a very heady time and, and very exciting to have been part of a piece that played a very big role in Kubernetes adoption and, and Kubernetes's continued success. Well, thank you. I'm a, I'm a fan of Helm. Uh, so I appreciate the efforts that you've uh, put into it. <laughs> Most of the good stuff was not me. <laughs> uh so I, I tell people that I have a pull request that was accepted by Helm. So that, that's one of my miniature claims to fame. I, I added an if statement around a standard output uh, error. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's removed because it was related to Tiller. So I think in version three, that probably was ripped out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there were a couple decisions. You know, you really learn as you go. And one of the fascinating things about Kubernetes is that so many... and. and I'll, I'll be honest about this. So many of my early assumptions about how people would use Kubernetes were just wrong. I mean, like flat out wrong. I really, really thought that a team would have a cluster 
right? Not an enterprise would have a cluster. I thought a three-node Kubernetes cluster was going to be average and a five-node was going to be really large. I, I had not seen it coming that people would deploy hundreds and thousands of nodes into their Kubernetes cluster. So as we were designing Tiller originally, so the for those of you not familiar with Helm, the, the Helm 1 was a client-side tool and and only lasted a very little time because uh, as we got going on it, I kind of said, you know, maybe we should try this sort of client-server architecture where we've got Tiller running as what we would now call a controller. At, at that time, there was no such thing, but Tiller running as an in-cluster service and Helm just being sort of like an API client that would send everything to Tiller and Tiller would do all the work in the cluster and then tell, tell the Helm client, okay, everything's good. And this seemed like a good idea at the time, <laughs> as so many ideas do. Um, yeah. But because we thought, you know, the, the we weren't going to run into security issues with Tiller because it would be small teams using these things. And the teams would, of course, have essentially root permission on their cluster. And, you know, I was I was also kind of using the metaphor, and you see this everywhere in the old Helm documentation. We keyed into the way that we use this message, right? Kubernetes is going to be an operating system, right? And an operating system has a package manager. And we surveyed the landscape of package managers. We were deeply inspired by apt-get. You can see that all over the place mm-hmm. by Snap, by Homebrew, and by, you know, these package managers that were operating system level package managers. And all of those require root to execute, to install packages. And so, of course, when we were deploying this, there didn't seem at that point to be any problem with giving one process like Tiller essentially cluster-wide access to all the stuff. We even ran it in the cube system area, and we just thought that was going to work out fine. We were wrong, right? The, the core <laughs> assumption that, that clusters would be small and team-specific did not hold at all. And the way that the Kubernetes access control model, you know, developed around us was not compatible with my original vision, uh, much to the credit of the people who developed it. And, and you know, I, I did not have a good uh, vision on that. And so when when I when we realized as a team, our assumptions about security and hell and in Kubernetes were, were not going to bear out over the long run, and our assumptions about usage patterns in Kubernetes were not going to bear out over the long run. We had to make the hardest pivot that I hope Helm ever had to, has to make, and that was going from the client-server model back to a client model. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was, I mean, as you can imagine, it's, it's contentious anytime you have to make a major architectural change, but but more so when the community at large is going, you need to move on to this new security model, uh, you know, uh, and and then mm-hmm. core developers are saying, but this is so much work. I mean, it's so much <laughs> so many things we have to rewrite and features that we honestly had to drop uh, and things we just couldn't figure out how to replicate from the Tiller world into the Helm 3 world. But, and it took us a long time, I think a year and a half total, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that even, start to finish. But the outcome with Helm 3 was something that I have been very pleased with, right? I think we, it was a, it was a hard lesson, right, that, that uh, we should not have waited as long to listen to the community when the community started telling us our assumptions about security were incorrect. But once we figured it out, you know, the entire Helm team, which is, comprised of people from a whole composed of people from a whole bunch of different companies it was remarkable how quickly everybody sort of gelled on the mission and then adam reese who uh was on my team there is also at fermion now uh he really kind of led this effort to say okay we know we did something wrong we know how we're going to course correct it's going to take a lot of work i'll triage the prs everybody go and and it took a while but it, it came through one of the funny things is we we talk in the helm i'm still the still involved in helm and we talk on occasion 
well, what's going to be in Helm 4? And in a, in a funny sort of way, we're kind of waiting for a moment that says, yeah, you know how you had to get rid of Tiller in Helm 3? Well, now there's something you got to do that's going to really push forward Helm 4. And for better or worse, we haven't seen one. Uh, a lot of the issues that are Helm 4 issues are things like, we'd like to tweak this a little, we'd like to refactor that a little, but but we're hoping we will never again see that kind of major architectural overhaul like we did between Helm 2 and Helm 3. Yeah. A few questions I have. I don't know how much uh, this relates to the origin story, but I, I don't know. The things that came up, to, came up to me. Why did you choose to write it in Go? Not that that's a strange choice, because given that Kubernetes is written in Go. And, right. But... I mean, you could have written in anything, I imagine. So yep. why did you choose Go? So I think the first application I had written in Go was was several years earlier. And uh, actually, the, for the first time I tried Go was the day it came out. Uh, okay. And, and, and <laughs> I, I was at a conference and tried it and said to the guy who was sitting next to me while we were at a lull on the conference booth, why in the world would anybody use this language? It's like, see again. I don't, uh, didn't we get past this? And then, you know, <laughs> fast forward a couple of years later and I'm like, I'm going to write everything and go, you know, it was uh, the, the, the simplicity of the language was very appealing to me. The mm-hmm. ability to compile it to a static binary, which was, you know, at the time as we were trying to deploy everything in containers was very attractive to me. And, and I think attractive to, to most of the team. It is, it would have been conceivable given the languages we were using at the time that, that when we started Helm, we would have used Python instead, right? Bunch of us had used Python, bunch of us really liked Python. But the, the catch at the time had been, uh, you know, Python package management itself was in a little bit of disarray at that period of time. And it would, would have been somewhat ironic, I suppose, but to, to have a package manager that had dependency issues when you were building the package manager. Uh, but for us, really, it was more a matter of, well, well let's just go with something that's going to be simple and go checked a lot of the simplicity boxes. Incidentally, we have talked here and there about, well, what, what would it mean if we rewrote Helm in Rust? And, and the reason there being that some of the things you can do with the, the Rust type system are more amenable to the kinds of things we wanted to be able to do in Helm, but couldn't figure out how to do well. But that's never going to happen because rewriting a big code base is, is not anybody's idea. Of, to my knowledge, not anybody's idea of a good time. So, uh, Oh, I know some people who think it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you access to the Helm repo. No. <laughs> but yeah, those, people, know, those people never think it's a good idea after they try it. Only yeah, until they try it much, the first yeah. time. <laughs> it seems like a good idea for the first day, then an okay idea for the first month. And then after that, you're going, this is way more work. Also, yeah. then you have to look at all the ugly parts of your code and acknowledge that they're there for a reason <laughs> and determine whether you want to fix that I, reason or accept I, the fact that your new, brand new shiny code is also going to look scary. <laughs> I just rewrote a function today, not even a code base, a single function I rewrote today. And there was this little weird thing that it did. It just did some search replace on some text. I'm like, this looks broken. I can't imagine this is correct. Like maybe, I mean, I'm sure it solves the problem, but this is not the right way to solve this problem. But I don't know what it's solving and I don't know what it's going to break if I move it. So I had to copy and paste that brokenness into my new version of the thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh man, I, I, I hesitate to admit how much that resonates with me. Uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the most peculiar functions I ever saw. I'm looking at a function in the, this is back in the Drupal days, right? Looking at this function that is supposed to print a string. And it's doing all these things like adding on, you know, CSS padding, you know, per character. And I'm looking at this going, you know, why, why, why is it doing this? 
And finally, I went, some, clearly, this is a mistake. And I just backed it out and, and, and exchanged it for a, a print string thing. And I got a, got a bug issue a few hours after I had merged it in from one of the designers saying, the kerning is off on this font. And I'm like, kerning, kerning. I got to go look up kerning. What is kerning? Apparently, <laughs> a previous developer had gone, well, the designer doesn't like the kerning on these fonts, so I'm just going to use CSS to pad it out. So he was like manually checking for the characters that the designer didn't like and readjusting the font padding around or the the uh, white space around them to wow. get them to line up well and i thought okay i've seen it all now seen it all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> went back to the old version never touched that function again yep. great. yeah great at least i had a comment so the next person who stumbles upon that and thinks what the hell yeah. <laughs> uh, knows not to touch it <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, the following lines are done for purely aesthetic purposes do not touch yeah, <laughs> yeah do, do not remove this code until so and so has been fired yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or has retired or, or changed teams. <laughs> oh, there's the strange things we do in service of making everything the way we want it to be. Exactly. Uh, and they're, they're definitely more than more than our fair share of, of those at home. I, in fact, I think you uh, you interviewed Taylor Thomas a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah. Taylor was also on the Helm uh, core team with me. And uh, and he took he ran the Helm watch part of the code base. That was the, the oh, one okay. that he, he supervised. And of all the pieces, and, you know, he jumped in uh, uh, fresh eyed and ready to go on the Helm project, inherited that piece of the project. And shortly after is, is going, well, OK, now I see why why I'm responsible for this piece. Uh, there, <laughs> it, it is, you know, trying to it, it is the one part that seems like it ought to be really straightforward. Right. The, the watch. Oh, yeah, I could write it in 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Install this thing and tell me when it's all ready to go. Right. How hard yeah. can that be? I mean, you know, uh, but the individual pieces of component, uh, individual pieces of Kubernetes are very nuanced. And the difference mm. between a pod coming up and being ready to serve and a uh, service being ready to serve and, a, you know, uh, all of these different things meant that there's just ridiculous branching logic with special cases for everything. And it is pro- it is the gnarliest piece of, of, of code inside of Helm and, and pretty much by necessity. I mean, we've tried to simplify it many times, but the the fact of the matter is the cost of an abstraction layer like Kubernetes is that at some point you have to say, OK, well, on this platform, it's going to do this. When you're using this as a load balancer, it's going to do that, and then just you know continue to to special case things in there. Uh, so Helm is kind of the jQuery of Kubernetes. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, in a way, yes. Uh, it, this is the this is the Tower of Babel we've been building all along. Is like we think if we just add one more abstraction layer, it'll solve all the problems. But every abstraction layer is just leaky enough that the tower tilts just a little bit to the left every time you add another brick. And before long, you're looking at it going, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And also, nobody can touch the bottom of this tower ever again because, you know, a camel's hair might tip the whole thing over. <laughs> Do you have any regrets about about Helm, about the design choices or, or mistakes you've made, anything? And it, it, it... However you want to interpret that. I, I mean, yeah, the, the the tiller part was was a regret. Uh, and one that in hindsight, you know, you have to give yourself some some grace on some of these things and say, all right, well, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the things that was difficult for us early on was really figuring out how to build the community around the project. And I think we had some some missteps early on that just we, we got we got it going. And then we didn't quite know what to do and, and how to build a community 
and created some environments that weren't particularly open. I, I think in like from January of 2016 on to maybe mid of that year, there were some times in there where the community was just, we were just malfunctioning, right? We weren't, weren't doing a good job of listening to users. Out of that, actually, we came up with a good model that ultimately has led that we've used repeatedly on open source things. So it was a, it was a regret because I know feelings were hurt. There were people that were early contributors to Helm that, that never came back after that because we just mishandled things. But we learned really that there are periods in an open source project where you really have to kind of look inward and focus on on the core developers getting the core project done, right? And and in those points, you know, trying to spend a lot of time doing evangelism of your project can really misfire because you don't really, you don't have enough of it to keep the vision going. And if people are sidetracked on that. So, so we came up with this model where we said, you know, at the beginning, you're like a circle of engineers who are all facing sort of inward and looking at the thing in the middle and saying, how do we build this? But then at some point you have to switch focus and say, okay, now it would be, you know, we really want to start building up a user base. Also, it would be really helpful to get other people involved. And so, you know, the, the inward facing circle suddenly kind of stops being inward facing and everybody kind of turns around and invites other people into the community. So we had this sort of visual that, that was accompanied by our team saying, okay, now is the time when we go out on Slack and we answer every question out there and we get active on the GitHub issues and we get active on uh, Stack Overflow and anywhere we can. And you start just reaching out and building up. And of course, you know, occasionally, you know, using sticking with this metaphor, you have to turn back inward and say, okay, here's a really difficult bug. How are we going to handle that? But for the most part, you're encouraging other people to start contributing and writing good documentation. And then what happens is you start to build up this concentric ring outside of your inner ring of people who come in and they're familiar with your project and are engaged in the project. And that's the kind of magical moment. And that's what we didn't understand the first time we saw it. But once you've got that second layer consecutive ring, then you can say, all right, time to build Helm V2 or time to build Helm V3. Uh, we're going to shuffle a little bit. Who wants to be in the inner ring focusing inward on getting the project done? And who wants to be the outer ring facing outward and bringing in yet another concentric ring of users? And we ended up with this sort of like target-shaped community model where it was about keeping some people very focused on getting the day-to-day job done as far as the code base goes and other people focused on being assistive to the community meeting them where they were at you know helping them out uh, and we would see as this as we built up this model people would come into the model and actually it, it worked really well so Taylor's a great example Taylor started uh, by showing up in Slack and asking a bunch of questions. I think he was at Nike at the time, asking a bunch of questions about how Helm worked. And then he got really involved and then he started doing PRs. And then he started answering other people's questions. And so we saw him, you know, go from sort of like an outer observer to that outer ring of users where he was the one outward facing saying, hey, I saw you showed up here yesterday and asked a question. I was asleep, but I wanted to get back to you. You know, you're still having this problem. Anything I can do to help? And triaging issues and, and and just, you know, knocking it out of the park. He was phenomenal in the community. Then when the Helm 2 to 3 transition happened, Taylor ended up sort of shifting his way into the inner ring and taking on a lot of the core work because he had a lot of experience already in the outer work. And uh, while I could never say there's kind of a one-to-one replacement, but everything Taylor was doing before, an IBM developer named Martin Hickey sort of jumped in and said, hey, I'll pick up the slack here. And he started going to town on a lot of the community stuff with us. And Taylor really became one of the core engineers. I started drifting back out to one of the outer rings. And we watched this model sort of play out in real time. And so even though that kind of came out of 
some high tension in the community initially when we misfired and, and we're not sure how we were supposed to manage the, the, the people who wanted to be core contributors versus the people who were just kind of coming in and, and trying to do a quick PR and, and hurt some feelings early on. That model ended up being sort of like a big learning experience for us. And consequently, when we started building other projects like uh, OAM, CNAB, Brigade, uh, you know, Draft, all of these other open source projects that are many now in CNCF, we used that model intentionally at the beginning and said, okay, well, first few months, we're really just focused in, then we turn around, we build the next circle, and then we do. And and it has worked out really well. And it's one of the very few things that I could honestly say I'm proud, really proud about in my career is kind of discovering a model that would work well to, to help open source grow. Uh, you know, most of the things we do, code is a hard one, right? Because we know that we pour energy into it, and we work really hard on it. But it's going to last a few years before somebody PRs in a better version, or maybe 10 years, you know, if your project is really successful. But some of these models, they make a difference in the growth of a community, they make a difference in, in real people's lives, right? People are find a sense of belonging in a community. And that means something beyond just, you know, writing out some code that helps them get the job done. And so that's one of those few things I'm, I'm kind of, kind of proud of in my career. And again, it's not all, not all me. It was a, you know, concerted effort by that whole Helm team and saying, how do we understand what's happening around us? Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. That's great. I mean, I've I've never been involved at that level of an open source project, but I, I have worked on several. I, I maintain a small a library, and I'm a member of the Couch DB uh, committee. So you know, I, I've seen some of that, but it, it sounds like a it sounds like you've uh, really. I mean, I suppose it helps that you were involved in a project that got a lot of momentum. A lot of open source projects, of course, don't. They aren't nearly as central to sort of the tech universe as something related to Kubernetes. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's great. It's, it sounds like a really encouraging story. That last two or three minutes of that was pretty inspirational. Have you got that documented or available somewhere? Like, is, is there a TEDx version of this? Because I know so many people who are who are like, oh, I'm going to make my project open source, you know, and they have this misunderstanding that if they mark their repo as public in GitHub, that all of these people are going to come in and just start contributing code. And they they totally miss that that whole part that you just talked about, about building your core group and focusing on the product, you know, and, and, and I've never heard the rings analogy before, but I think it's just fantastic and worthy of sharing. I think the only other time we've really talked publicly about it, Karen Chu and I talked about the rings model briefly at KubeCon LA. What was that? 2021? Yeah, I think that was the, the last one. Uh, but you're right. This, that, that would be good blog post material. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. It would be a uh, be good material for uh, just a, a podcast episode just to talk about 
how to run an open source project too. That would be great. I don't know if it's quite for this audience, but it would be a great, uh, a yeah. great topic. Yeah. Yeah. Karen, who ran the community with us also has this like depth of understanding of how, how developers think really more. I, I think as developers, it is easy for us uh, as, as technologists in general. I think it's easy for us to see to, to we want to see ourselves as purely rational actors, right? I write logic for a living, you know, I'm good, <laughs> uh, you know, um, yeah. and yet we're actually just as emotional as everyone else. And some of the biggest hurdles for us being happy in our career are things like sense of belonging in the community, right? A sense of enthusiasm about what I'm working on. Passion is definitely drives the vast majority of open source development. Why in the world would any of us code on a Saturday if we didn't feel some passion about what we were doing? And it's funny that we try to edit that edit that emotional part out of our descriptions of ourselves, right? And I think one of the things that Karen always point always was was right in tapping into was the fact that if you can meet people there, even when they refuse to admit that that's a need for them, right? But when you meet people there, they deeply, deeply appreciate it, and and consequently that means you pay attention to branding, right? Because your logo says something about the tenor of the project. You pay attention to your documentation because the tone of voice you use there can either turn somebody off or get somebody excited within within moments. Uh, and so many of those little details that we tend to not want to talk about in open source, because again, we are thinking of ourselves as pure rational actors are absolutely key to creating open source communities that can be successful. Helm was a Helm was sort of a test bed of this. We we tried to employ a lot of this technique in Helm to just create welcoming spaces. Uh, we had uh, a formula, for example, for when we received a PR that we knew we couldn't merge, where it was always the first comment somebody sees has got to be positive and, and encouraging, even if it's just "Thanks for doing this PR." We know it took you a long time to put together, because if we could lead with that, then saying things like you know, something's not right in this particular set of uh, lines of code, right? Doesn't come across immediately as, oh my gosh, they hate it. They don't like me. I should just close this PR and move on. It comes across as, mm-hmm. oh, they care about the fact that I put this work in here and they're trying to figure out, you know, how how to help me get this merged. We didn't always do a great job of that, but it was a, a pattern that we tried very early on just to kind of build some positive rapport with the community. And it does seem to be something that people really, really appreciate, whether whether they acknowledge it or whether it just results in people continuing to work on their PRs. It, it appeared to work quite well. So what you're telling me is that you're not taking the Stack Overflow approach, which is downvote close. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, one of the hardest things about becoming a big project is 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 exactly the, the Stack Overflow problem. That at some point you have yeah. so many issues coming in, and many of them are things that are just so far out of scope or whatever that you can't you can't even sort of. Uh, we we definitely later in the project, uh, you know, six months ago from now, really. Uh, suffered with the fact that we didn't have the number of people necessary to stay on top of the issue queue. And consequently, our earlier patterns just sort of fell by the wayside. And it was like, won't, you know, close won't fix, close won't fix, close won't fix, because we just couldn't handle the volume. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a problem. I know Kubernetes as a whole is experiencing it, is that as demand goes, uh, it's hard to scale up the number of open source developers who are willing to spend time, particularly doing the chore-like work. Because uh, it's there's nothing glamorous about triaging an issue queue. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk about how uh, Helm became part of the CNCF? Yeah, 
Helm was one of the first projects accepted into the CNCF. And, and it was, it was an interesting process. So Helm, the original version, Helm Classic was a Deus project, had nothing to do with official Kubernetes at all at that point, right? It was just us doing a thing. And then as we merged with the DM, Deployment Manager, that's what DM stood for. As we merged with the, the Google Kubernetes Deployment Manager project, uh, we were sort of like automatically merged into the Kubernetes org. So for a while, Helm was officially part of Kubernetes itself, which was an awkward fit and and didn't sit well with uh, a number of people that were in the Kubernetes uh, core saying, why is the package manager, you know, part of the in, in the same project as, you know, the, the, the kubelet, right? Doesn't doesn't quite make sense. The governance model doesn't match. And it was true. Uh, the way we did things was very different from the way the rest of Kubernetes did, uh, more by necessity than anything else, right? As we were building up packaged chart repositories, we had a completely different set of guidelines we needed to apply. As we made decisions about the stability and robustness of the project, our release cadence didn't match with Kubernetes. Um, and so there we had a number of points that were sort of like friction points. And, you know, I, I mentioned we had Helm Summits, which were small conferences, specific to Helm. And at one of them, uh, Brian Grant and I went out for coffee. At the time, Brian Grant was was heading the Kubernetes project. And uh, and we sat down for coffee and and sort of like mutually landed on the same topic as the opening topic. Like, does Helm really belong inside of the Kubernetes project? And Brian's going, no, you don't match our process and you don't match our expectations about how people are building you know, the software because you've got a different problem to solve. And I'm going... And no, because, you know, we, we need to be able to build a charts repository, which is totally different than what Kubernetes core is doing. And our governance model is a little different. And so out of like a 30, 45 minute coffee session, we kind of came out going, okay, we've, we've got to figure out where Helm belongs. And, and it was clear to everybody that Helm belongs in the ecosystem. And it was equally clear that it didn't belong inside of Kubernetes. So as CNCF was beginning to really formalize their own process for how they would manage projects, we, we all kind of looked at it as an opportunity to say, uh, would a project with, with the scope of Helm be a good fit for the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and the, and the way they were trying to structure things? And it turns out, yeah, it was, it was a much better fit. And, and it was a little bit of a painful move because separating out of Kubernetes required everything from figuring out how we were going to do CICD again because we were relying on a lot of their infrastructure to uh, to then having to really answer in earnest, how are we going to govern this project? We need to write up guidelines for how we're going to govern this project. Even while we were sort of balking against the way Kubernetes was running things, we were also actively relying on them to provide us a lot of the sort of organizational structure. So it was a little bit of a, a difficult move just because there were so many things we had to think through. And you really want to nail some of those things, right? Uh, we want to nail governance for sure. But uh, you really want to nail CICD as well. And so we had, you know, deeply technical <laughs> problems that were outside of the expertise of, outside of my expertise, right, that we knew we needed to solve. And then, you know, sort of like this philosophical part where we had to say, okay, now for sure we have to describe this. We have to talk about how we're going to enforce the code of conduct. CNCF, incidentally, has solved many of these problems with in sort of a generic way since then. But early on, early on, those were sort of our trials. But once we did that initial separation, things just sort of fell into place. And... You know, other projects landed alongside us in CNCF. Some of them outpaced us. I think Helm graduated after, after uh, I forget what the project was that beat us through that process. It might have been, was it Envoy maybe? But uh, the main point being, you know, we 
we might have taken a little longer to learn some of the, the ways to do things, but it was always a very supportive uh, environment. And I'm, I, I mean, when you look at CNCF now, after after several years of diligent work on their part to create a foundation that could meet projects where they're at from tiny to huge, I, they have done an absolutely remarkable job. The whole sandbox way of doing things is just a testament to solving a problem that that I was afraid was going to sink CNCF. When Rocket, so Rocket was one of the alternative container uh, runtimes, RKT, I think was the way you spelled it. One of my favorite pieces of engineering to ever come out of CoreOS so is, is a very, very elegant piece of software. But it didn't, as OCI emerged and and the container ecosystem sort of solidified around Mobi and ContainerD and technologies like that, it turned out that Rocket didn't really fit a niche, didn't really fill a niche. Uh, and the developers had sort of lost interest. And when I saw this happen, my first thought was, CNCF is not going to be able to cope with this, right? We're going to end up with CNCF being, and, and I'm glad to be wrong about this, but at the time, I'm like, CNCF is going to be a dumping ground for dead projects. And yet they reacted well, and they they solved the problem with Rocket. But moreover, they applied the learnings from that and started separating out, you know, sandbox projects from incubated projects. And that was the that was the change they needed to make. And now there are definite milestones where you say, I'm going to contribute this project to CNCF. We've contributed at Microsoft. I think we did six, seven, maybe eight projects. And you put them in incubator, and then you see you you develop them and you try and build an audience. And if you just don't succeed, then there's a clear path. There's a clear off ramp, right? And that, as we all know from open source development, is very important because when we start losing interest in the project, it's unfair to not signal to your potential users that this project is not maintained anymore. So I love the way that CNCF ended up doing that, and and Helm, of course, has found a very happy home there. But I, I, I kind of like to think that some of the things we learned in those early days, uh, and, and we there being everybody involved in CNCF, have over time really led to a better, more robust um, foundation that has a really good set of guidelines that I think works very well. I can't even remember what the original question was. <laughs> oh, just, 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 yeah, that's fine. Just how, how Helm became part of CNCF. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't I think you answered it in there. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really good. No, this is literally turning into a masterclass of how to build open source software. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's funny because Helm is a big success, right? For me, for, for me personally, it's something I take a lot of pride in. But I have had literally over a hundred not successful open source projects in my career. And you never know what things will be successful and, and what won't. And you have outliers right. like, I read the PHP HTML5 parser with Matt Farina. The two of us built this as a sort of passion side project. It was wildly successful. I mean, it was getting, it, it probably still does get a lot of usage. We had zero community. We had one person come in and help us out and he was amazing. But we never really, the issue queue never really spiked up. And, you know, we didn't have like PHP HTML5 con uh, thing. <laughs> but it was by all you know by the by the github metrics it was a totally successful project but it had no community and you oh. know matt farina also another helm maintainer he works at susa now an excellent engineer we sat down one time and said why did helm get a community and and the html parser didn't and maybe the answer is obvious to everybody else but the HTML5 parser, we were just implementing a specification. There was nothing really to be decided or debated or anything like that. We either succeeded 100% or we failed and had a bug, right? And and that mm-hmm. was really, 
our, our success criterion was implementing the standard. And the closer we approached to implementing the standard, the less community involvement we saw. The fewer issues were filed, the fewer people were talking about us because parsing HTML is a decidedly unglamorous task. Helm, on the flip side, was solving a human problem that required innovation and required thoughtfulness and a high degree of flexibility. And uh, every person has a different, unique use case, even if it's only a hair off of somebody else's. And that meant that we had to continually form this sort of uh, forum uh, where we could discuss how it should operate or how it might operate. And and community. that seems to be one of the key ingredients for forming a community that just never obtained for an HTML5 parser. So, you know, success in open source is such a strange thing because you can be successful as an individual person scratching your own itch and discovering that other people like it and use it. You can be successful as a small team of people who create a project that gets relied upon by a bunch of big PHP projects, but never really forms much of a community. And then there are successes like Kubernetes itself, right? Probably one of, I I think at this point, it is the the most uh, active project in GitHub. And you've got a community that is probably at this point well into the hundreds of thousands of people who have interacted at some point via an issue, via a PR uh, or, or Slack messages. And all of those are successes, but each one is is different in kind, right? And, and consequently, the way you as the core maintainer of the project go is going to vary rapidly. You know, Brian Grant's stress level was much higher than my stress level has ever been because he had to worry about production outages at major cloud providers all around the world. Whereas Helm might have been like something went down for a little while in the PHP HTML5 parser. As far as I know, nobody ever got angry with me and threw stuff at my, uh, you know, uh, my <laughs> screen image or something like that. You did write your HTML parser with regular expressions, right? <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> I had really nerded out at that point about, you know, recursive descent parsers and things like that. And and there, there, I tried to write it without regular expressions. And in the end, always like one case where you're like, fine, fine. Uh, Where's the CRE, you know, quick reference? And let me spend 45 minutes trying to figure out how many asterisks and dots I need in this thing. (laughs) So the the question that we I think we have to ask because we're talking about Helm, what's coming up in the future? Um, I don't know how closely you're involved in the project anymore, but I imagine you have at least some some. finger on the pulse there. Yeah, the by way of editorializing, which apparently is all I do, being a CEO is kind of neat, but I don't get to write code ever anymore. I mean, yeah. like, yeah, um, and I, I do miss that. So while I'm involved in Helm still, it's more as an observer and and occasional, I, I'm sort of like the person who explains why we did it that way in the past now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, still still go to the, the Helm calls, the weekly Helm calls as frequently as I can and still on the governing board for Helm. Um, you know, one of the big transitions Kubernetes as a whole and consequently Helm has made over the years is going from, you know, the cutting edge, highly experimental proof of work sort of thing where we can say, look, we can uh, MVP, you know, you go from proof of concept to a minimum viable product, which is probably Kubernetes 1.2. And then people start using it and expectations change. Uh, I think we got away with a lot in the Helm 2 to 3 migration. And a lot of that was because people like Remus and Martin jumped in and helped smooth the transition between the two. But it's unlikely that we'll be able to pull off large scale 
feature changes in Kubernetes or, or Helm over, over time because so many people rely on it and so many organizations are dependent on the way they function. So at some point in Helm's not too distant future, maybe a year and a half ago, we transitioned over to a model that was designed to foster stability at the expense of introducing new features. So, you know, no backward compatibility breaking changes, uh, no new things that are just totally different from what the user expects, you know, very strict guidelines about what command line arguments have to look like and how to, how to do feature flagging and stuff like that. That's a deeply pervasive part of the community psychology among core, core maintainers now. And so as we've talked about Helm 4, we're not sure sort of what we would want to do. And occasionally we've opened up forums and said, okay, what are big features that people would like to see? This is our one change, one chance to introduce breaking changes. What do people want to see? And we'll get a few ideas and people do have some good ideas, but nothing that's really pushed us to say, okay, now is time to start development. We, we intended to announce development right before, uh, I think it was in 2021, right before KubeCon LA, but we couldn't muster enough of a feature list to justify announcing it there. And it's been sort of perpetually backburnered now. That said, Red Hat in particular, but a number of other organizations have become more active in the Helm community recently. And it's been great. Uh, you get some new ideas in there uh, and some people who uh, have seen things that we have not seen. And I wouldn't be surprised if 2023 is the year that people say, okay, here's a feature set we want to see in Helm 4. So I'm kind of holding out the the option here that that discussion could start up again early next year and really kind of uh, go forward from there. Um, again, I don't see, think we'll see a sea change like we did from Helm 2 to 3, where we changed from a client server model to a pure client model. But what I do think we'll see is more features that are aligning better with the way people are actually using Kubernetes. And, and we see patterns drop in. The, the perennial problem with Helm 3 has been how we handle CRDs. And that's probably a three-hour podcast in its own right. It's such a complicated topic. And, and, and we've taken a very risk-averse approach to it. But now I'm starting to hear interesting ideas. And, and people might come up with good ways to deal with the operator use case, the CRD use case. And, and that might be the catalyst that kicks off the home for. But for the remainder of this year, uh, you know, the, the big item on our schedule is like the home booth at KubeCon. So, you know, nothing, nothing <laughs> boat rocking there. Uh, just a fun yeah. chance to get together with the community and connect again. Nice. Which is not a bad thing. I mean, that's actually a great place for a project to be in. It, you've got a solid supporting community and the product you've built is meeting their needs. Yeah. In fact, I think one of the most dangerous assumptions we sometimes fall into making is that for a for a project to continue to be relevant, its feature set must continually change. And that mm-hmm. and, and, and that, to some extent that might that part might be true, but then we add on to the add on to that the thing saying, well, this project seems to be not adding new features, therefore it must be stagnant and irrelevant. When in a lot of times we avoid adding on new features because we want to encourage stability. In particular, infrastructure is is that way, right? We used to we used to during COVID, right? When we're all trying to find ways to distract ourselves during the worst of it, uh, when we're all you know sitting at home, the team got into the habit of posting the JavaScript framework of the day, which was just sort of a joke that there are so <laughs> many JavaScript frameworks. But part of the reason there are is because the nimbleness of front-end development really requires it. Design is constantly changing. The specs are constantly evolving. In operations and, and platform engineering world where we all live, 
that would be a bad thing if we had a, Kuber, a new Kubernetes alternative every week, right? We'd just go mad, you know, continually trying to port our stuff from one platform to another. So systems engineering is very different in the sense that we, we strive for stability. And so maybe you're right. Maybe there is something to be said for the fact that when a project slows down a little bit in this space, it's because we are, to use like Eric Raymond's phrase, you know, we're scratching the itches that are out there, right? We're meeting people where they're, where they're at and bug fixing is, in that sense, the, the most correct thing you can do for the community and introducing dangerous new features might be the worst thing you can do for your community. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I've I've always said that boring is good in this in this industry. Yep, yep. It's not. It doesn't. Maybe it doesn't sell conference tickets, <laughs> or, or what, whatever other you know measure of of commercial success you might be looking for. But it is what we we're, we're looking for. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah libraries like uh, OpenSSL. Man, there's no glamour involved right. at all in maintaining OpenSSL. But the internet would be <laughs> a vastly different place if it weren't for that one library. The only famous people in that uh, on that library are the ones who make introduce the bugs, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number one way to turn your name into a curse word is to introduce a bug and open it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, this has been a fun conversation for me. I enjoy using Helm. Uh, I haven't been for a while, but just because the project I'm I'm working on mostly right now isn't using Kubernetes, but I've I've enjoyed Helm and Kubernetes, so I look forward to getting back to it at some point. Maybe by then Helm four will be out, and we'll have, be using Quantum Kubernetes or whatever the feature <laughs> set will be. <laughs> uh, quantum Kubernetes. I felt a shiver go down my spine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I, I won't ask for that yet. I'll just ask for Kubernetes in the browser. That, that's all I really want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, brought to you by WebAssembly. Yeah. There we go. Speaking of which, I do want to follow up with one question on that because we had Taylor on the podcast who's former or was with the Helm project and is now working on Wasm. You obviously were deeply ingrained in the Helm project. Now you're working on WebAssembly. Is there a pattern here that I should be picking up on? <laughs> I would say yes. I mean, uh, a lot of us are interested in figuring out there, there are definitely problems that, that Kubernetes and, and containers did not solve. And there are a lot of us trying to figure out how to do that. What? <laughs> are you going to like uh, bleep out when I say that? In the final <laughs> oh, yeah. The editors are definitely cutting that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And and as we, you know, there's room now and we, and we start technological in, innovation and, and evolution happens when we start to say, hey, uh, you know, we solved this batch of problems. Uh, what's the next batch of problems? And you can solve it. Can we solve it with existing tools? And if the answer is no, then the next question is, then what do we need to build? And uh, Taylor and I are well aligned on the idea that we hit some limitations in the way we wanted to use cloud services. Uh, they're expensive, getting more expensive. Uh, bursty workloads are hard to deal with. There's still a lot of tension about building cross-platform, cross-architecture Docker containers, um, you know, things like that. And we said, okay, we got There's got to be a way to solve this. And WebAssembly is a a functional piece that opens up some opportunities. And you know, Taylor at Cosmonic, they're trying one way of doing this. Us at Fermion, we're trying another way. Hopefully, both of us will be successful in this. And, and there are many more people trying this as well. I'm really optimistic about that. And I think that this is just one more sort of evolutionary cycle where we solve a few more problems today. 
tomorrow we'll discover that even this solution didn't quite cut it all the way and there will be another thing that comes along. Um, but that's what makes this industry great is that we never get bored and we will all be employed until the heat death of the universe because there's always something else to do. <laughs> And even after that, somebody's going to come back and ask for us to fix a bug. <laughs> <laughs> this was not like, this. This software does not function at below zero degrees Kelvin. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a little bit disappointed that you were wishing Taylor well because I was hoping to have you both back on for a deathmatch episode. <laughs> I guess that won't be happening. I mean, I, we can fake it. I, I'm sure we can come okay. up with something. Yeah. We probably disagree more on which uh, which musicians we like than we do about which. Type technologies we like but uh yeah all right look if uh, wwe can pull edition. it off we can pull it off <laughs> taylor taylor and i i think are uh, speaking together uh, the plan is that we'll speak together at WebAssembly day which is one of the wasm day which is one of the pre-days at kubecon in detroit so if you're around in detroit you can catch us there i think that's the monday of kubecon and if not all the videos will get posted later so if we get into some kind of pugilistic death match it'll all be there for your viewing online okay. in person <laughs> get your tickets now ladies and gentlemen wow it'd be a shame if there were a bunch of folding chairs on stage when you two were speaking <laughs> in this corner we have right <laughs> as long as i get to wear the the big feathered boa cape thing that i can throw off my shoulders dramatically i'll be happy i would pay i would pay to see that absolutely <laughs> I, I think you should do that regardless because he he may not catch this episode, but it'll be even funnier if you just walk out on stage with that and throw it off <laughs> with no context. Uh, we do have a joke that Taylor and I have very different conference attire. I usually come wearing a tie and a sweater and a collared shirt, not necessarily in that order. Usually shirt, tie, then sweater. And he comes wearing <laughs> so. Well, if you don't have exciting new features to announce for Helm 4, you have to do something to get attention. It sounds like you figured it out. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, things I learned from the Kardashians. There's got to be something. I, <laughs> I hope that's the only time the Kardashians have ever been mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> Probably so. It's certainly in my memory. Uh, open source community building with the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> Seven things. And on that note, it's time to wrap up. Thanks, everybody, for attending. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else we should talk about? Is there anything we should <laughs> to ask about related to Helm or the Kardashians or anything else? I mean, uh, you know, and, and going back to the WebAssembly thing, I really I am excited for the future of cloud commuting because I think we're going to see another wave of innovation. And I, I think innovation tends to go in waves. And I think we're just on the uptick of one. I'm really optimistic about the next few years and the things we'll see both you know, in the Kubernetes container ecosystem as they continue to flesh out the things that they're working on. My interests now are kind of moving on from Kubernetes and containers into WebAssembly, which is a, a deeply promising space. And I think we'll see layers upon layers of innovation uh, there. And that's really, you know, again, that's that's kind of what excites me and, and what gets me up every morning, that and coffee. But uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think there's some exciting stuff coming ahead. We're excited about the stuff we'll announce at KubeCon. We have a uh, a cat game at KubeCon to explain how WebAssembly works. So, you know, anybody who's there, stop by, play a cat game, get a t-shirt. It'll be great. Sounds awesome. I can't tell you what I'm, I'm just a little bit disappointed to hear that because I've been interested in WebAssembly and kept putting off learning it. Then we had Taylor on the show. And at the end of that show, I was excited about WebAssembly. And now after talking with you, I'm even more excited yeah. about infrastructure with WebAssembly. It's like, Dang it, I did not need another project on my list right now. But honestly, it, 
I'm intrigued and I want to, I want to figure out how this plays into what we do for a living. Cause I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to, to you releasing Kubernetes in the browser. <laughs> all over again take it from the top yeah. <laughs> all right matt how can people get in touch with you if they're interested where, where, where can we follow you i am techno sophos everywhere t-e-c-h-n-o-s-o-p-h-o-s i'm, I'm techno sophos on twitter techno sophos and github and other places that I can't can't remember. <laughs> That's definitely the easiest uh, easiest way to find me online. I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm on GitHub every day. Uh, so those are good places. Uh, and then it, we host a Discord. Uh, Fermion has a Discord server. I'm, I'm around in there quite frequently. And occasionally I answer messages in the Kubernetes Helm Slack, but uh, that's getting rarer and rarer as the days go by. And your company, uh, do, do you have, are you... Do you have products we can buy yet, or or is it still uh, in the pre pre launch phase or or whatever? Fermion has a number of open source projects that are out. The developer tool Spin is the best way to get started. You know, we like to say you can go from blinking cursor to deployed app in two minutes or less. Radu, the CTO, keeps saying. It's really one minute or less. I'm like, I know, but two sounds so catchy. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's the developer tool, all open source. It always will be. Um, we have a Fermion platform, which is uh, an open source platform you can install on AWS, DigitalOcean, Azure, whatever you want to kind of try out what the what we think the next wave of cloud computing is going to look like. It's powered by Nomad as its scheduler instead of Kubernetes. Uh, we've really been enjoying working with HashiCorp on using the Nomad scheduler for WebAssembly. It's just very well, they're, they're very well aligned as far as project goals go. So that's something else you can try. Then we'll have big announcement coming up at KubeCon that we're really excited about that really sort of sets the vision for where we're going from here on out. Uh, but we've been around, awesome. November 1st will be our birthday. Uh, and so we've been around less than a year at this point. And it has been astonishing to, to watch a group of highly skilled engineers realize their vision like right in front of me right as they're as they're building out this platform so we're really excited about the announcement coming up at kubecon any hints on the announcement or is it, is it a top secret yeah, sounds I, like a secret I, I have some kind of pr guidelines i'm supposed to be able to use to hint at stuff but you know uh-huh. we're, 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 <laughs> we're shooting for the kind of platform that'll make it really easy for people to get started on this and get get going awesome. and see something up on the internet very fast so uh, that's probably cool. way more than the pr people would tell me i'm supposed to say but you know we're friends right, we, we won't tell them right. that you said it yeah, we'll only tell all the people that listen to this podcast <laughs> well when is when is the detroit cubecon i believe it's the last week of october I, i've last been looking for a Halloween. okay i want to i want a reason to get candy at cubecon but uh yeah right now i was trying to figure out if this episode would be released prior close enough to then where it wouldn't get you into trouble, but um, <laughs> no, we'll be, we'll be, uh, this episode will be live a few weeks before that. So, yeah. okay. All right. That sounds safe then. Yeah. Yeah. You want to keep it safe so that, you know, you, you have nice things to say about us and you're willing to come back on the show a second time <laughs> so we can have a deeper conversation about WASM and WebAssembly infrastructure. Awesome. Yeah. And to, to learn more about uh, WebAssembly and what Fermion's building, Fermion.com is a great place or you can follow Fermion at Fermion Tech on Twitter. And we write lots of blog posts ranging from, you know, very practical ones about what we're doing to rather pie in the sky ones about why we are excited about WebAssembly in general. Awesome. Pie in the sky. Is that really a thing or it seems like something I, I hear the phrase. I, I don't know what it possibly means. 
Yeah, it's a legitimate <laughs> I mean, phrase, but I have no idea what like if there's if you know what pie in the sky means, come on uh, and be a guest on the show and explain <laughs> it to us. <laughs> All right, shall we do some picks? Let's do some picks. Yep. Let's do some picks. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I completely forgot to get picks. Do you have a pick ready, Will? I do. This week, I have an anti-pick and a pro-pick. So my anti-pick, I started reading a book. I keep wanting to say Necro-Comic-Con or Necronomicon, but that's not the right book. That's actually the Book of the Dead or something. Um, but I keep messing up the title. The book I started reading was Cryptonomicon from Neil Stevenson. And this is my anti-pick because I just couldn't get into it. You know, it starts off where there's this guy who he's bike riding with Alan Turing. And then he's learning about how the mathematical relationships between the pipe organ makes the different sounds. And then... There's this other guy who's like flying to the Philippines and like the first few chapters, it took me three chapters to figure out that the previous three chapters were all about different people. And so it was really hard for me to get into. So that's my so, anti so kind of like the book version of Inception. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the interesting thing about that book is he sort of saw cryptocurrency coming a long time before anybody else did. That's what triggered me to read it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd read that that same summary about it and i was like oh that's cool and but i just couldn't get past the enough of the intro chapters to get into the plot so my actual pick for the week then is i put that down and picked up stephen king's latest book i think it's his latest book fairy tale and within the first three or four paragraphs i was just sucked down deep into that world and spent way too much time last night reading that book <laughs> um, which I a lot of times I find Stephen King books very similar. You know, the first few chapters are hard to get into, but this one, for whatever reason, just grabbed me by the shirt and jerked me straight down the tail. And um, so check that one out. Those are my awesome. picks. Cool. Well, my pick for the week is uh, some shameless self-promotion. My new YouTube channel is uh, up and running and has a few videos on it. And I have a couple in the pipeline will be coming out all about programming in Go. So if you want to learn Ooh. to hack on Helm or write that new Kubernetes in the browser thing that in Go that's compiled to WebAssembly or, or just do normal things, even that's fine too. Uh, my channel called Boldly Go is uh, up and running, waiting for your subscription. Be sure to like and subscribe and all those cheesy things that everybody says on the YouTube videos. So yeah, check out Boldly Go on YouTube. I'll have a link in the description. That's a clever name. I like it. I'm, I'm hopeful that there's some Star Trek, Star Trek yeah. vibe going to it. Yeah. Yes, excellent. I think mine, now I'm, now I'm kind of inspired for a mini pick before giving my real pick, which was... Uh, awesome. <laughs> and, and this is mini in multiple dimensions. Uh, Tiny Go is an alternate Go compiler that can compile to embedded devices and, and small devices and also to WebAssembly. And so we yeah. have been using that quite a bit to compile our Go code to WebAssembly. Very... It allows you to do all kinds of neat little optimization tricks. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but my bigger pick would be Notion. I uh, I tried Notion a long time ago and just didn't get it. 
and then thought, oh, this is, you know, yet, yet another wiki-ish kind of platform. I don't, I don't understand what I'd use it for. But then sort of on a whim, I went back and, uh, and, and actually watched through the video tutorial. And once I started to understand the model behind it, I got really interested. And then, of course, it became the new hammer and everything looks like a nail and I'm trying to put everything in Notion and uh, <laughs> the whole idea of like a database uh, you know, structured database and uh, and a documenting system has really sort of resonated with me. And I've been having a really good time uh, working on Notion, everything from helping me keep track of meetings and to-do lists and things like that to uh, cough, organizing Dungeons and Dragons games, cough. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which rule set do you use, though? That's the real question. Oh, no. Now I'm going to be oh, yeah. embarrassed because I'm, I'm using 5e. I have not tried the new candidate for one D&D. And also, 5e was the first one I ever played. So I've never tried any of the previous rule sets. <laughs> oh, well. I'm a mainliner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I make it sound like I'm going to make fun of somebody for not being a purist, but I've never actually played D&D in person. I've only ever done the the Baldur's Gate in, in other like online series. The, mm-hmm. They're made by the same company. So I guess they're official. They use the official rules, but I've, I've never worn a costume or sat there and rolled a D12 in person. So I've never I'm not really a, a costume geek either. either. Yet, but you will at the at the next conference, right? Yeah, at, 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 if if we've got a KubeCon that's Halloween themed, I'll come dressed as a DM. <laughs> Just putting that out there for any of you influencers out there who can make it happen. Awesome. It, it seems kind of like it's it's got to go hand in hand. You're in Detroit right before Halloween for KubeCon. How can you not add costumes? Yep. Well, well, he only asked for influencers to make it happen. Are you an influencer? <laughs> Just declare it so. <laughs> I don't think I have like that kind of influence. I, I can influence other things or, um, yeah. <laughs> we, we won't talk about that on a family figures friendly show. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. I, th- I think it might be time to wrap this up. It's been a lot of fun. Any any last words before we hang up? No. Every time someone says we should talk about Helm, I think I have nothing to say about Helm. Uh, and then every time <laughs> I open my mouth, I discover I have a whole lot to say about Helm, and I'm surprised anybody will ever listen. So thank you very much for listening. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing. I, f- I found it quite enjoyable. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks. And until next time, enjoy your DevOps. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.